Hi, everyone. It's Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 13 of Yoga Land. My guest today is yoga teacher Claire Missingham. Claire is a hugely popular teacher in London, and she teaches workshops and trainings around the world. To me, Claire is an all-around fascinating person with an utterly delightful voice. I know you will love listening to her voice today. She was raised in a Sufi household, and she studied dance seriously as a child and and then became a professional dancer before becoming a yoga teacher. So what I see in Claire is this ability to both understand and communicate esoteric or spiritual thought and also communicate very practical, down-to-earth physical embodiment. So pretty much the perfect combo for a yoga teacher. Sophia and I went to London a few years ago when Jason did a month-long teacher training there, and Claire was so generous to our family. She took Sophia and I out to play with her daughter. She had us over to her house, and she's absolutely one of those people who lives her yoga. She's kind, she's truly humble, and she has a great sense of humor, which I think is really important in the yoga practice. And she also cares deeply about her students. So I'm so happy to share her story and her insights with you today. Here goes. I would love to just start with your story and maybe even start with your spiritual background of your childhood. And I know that you were raised Sufi, but I don't actually know what that means in practice. And I don't really know what that meant to you as a child or even as an adult. So my parents... um... My father first converted to Sufism in the late 60s. And then when him and my mother got together, she also converted. So before myself and my brother were born, they both lived in Morocco with their guru, with their teacher, Nir Fez, uh, for two years. And so I think in in much the same way as you would have an ashram, they were responsible for all cooking together and cleaning together and their spiritual practice would be together. And then eventually their teacher sent them back and said, you know, now it's time to go and start a family. So back they came from Morocco in their little VW camper van, like literally they were the original hippies. in their camper van back from Morocco with a load of Moroccan rugs to sell on Portobello Market in London. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was born, um, I was born, my name was Habiba and my brother is called Imran. We were born into really a Sufi household. So although I can't speak particularly eloquently about Sufism in any depth itself, what I did understand was just that there was a kind of spiritual context to my parents' lives and a framework in which they chose to live, really. And it wasn't something that we were, that was then imposed on us or that we were particularly encouraged to do or taught, per se, as a religion, uh, in a family religion. It was more that it was something that my parents followed. But I think what it definitely did was it gave me an insight into otherness from the other children that I grew up with and from the town that I grew up in. We were definitely bohemian hippies and, and children of Sufis. And my father was a poet. That was 
what he did. So he wrote poetry and and had uh, poetry published in his books and so forth and would do poetry readings and work with uh, amazing musicians and they would do gatherings and get togethers and very groovy very very groovy very bohemian but also you know we didn't uh, I didn't grow up uh, with any form of financial wealth but I definitely felt that we had a cultural wealth but I think that also at the same time I just you know like many children that grow up in ashrams or or you know, in that kind of way that I kind of craved just to be very normal and to like... To fit in. To fit in and uh, to be stable and where I would be sent to school with a reusable brown paper bag that would be used and used and used and used until it fell apart. I just was desperate to have a plastic lunchbox with, you know, white bread and ham sandwiches in it, which was just not going to (laughs) happen. Right. Add the kind of hard homemade bread with some kind of like garlicky vegetarian infusion inside. <laughs> and that type of thing wafting as I opened my bag. You know, so I think I just craved normality and I actually grew up in a town that was just very small town and um, where, where people just did have that kind of normality per se. But And then when I was 10, I asked to change my name to Claire because I felt I would fit in more. And that's nice that they allowed that. Yeah, we actually, we went, it was the first day in the new class uh, when I was 10 and the teacher said, does anybody have any nicknames or names you would rather be called? And I literally, by the seat of my pants in that one second, just said, yep, um, can you call me Claire? Can everyone wow. can everyone just call me Claire here on in? You know, sort of stifled giggles. But it did actually work out. But my brother is still known as Imran. Uh-huh. So anyway, I think that what it definitely gave me was, you know, my father could recite Rumi poetry just like that. I mean, every piece of Hafiz, Rumi, so any of the Sufi poets that have now infused the yoga community. Right. I mean, yeah, it's fascinating, that connection. Yeah, 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 because they love them in the yoga community now. But it's, it's quite funny because it, that I just grew up with that as part of Sufism. Yeah, and I felt that when I, I was a dancer and I was a choreographer and I used to spend a great deal of time in New York and I walked into a yoga studio over there having dappled with Iyengar yoga at home in a couple of years before that, but I walked into a yoga studio there and it was just very spiritual. And I walked in and it felt like in our house, at the top of our house, we used to have our spiritual room, which is where my dad would pray seven times a day and he would meditate and he would chant and do uh, all of his um, practice. Um, And I walked into the yoga studio and I think immediately it felt like that. It felt like... Familiar. Familiar. The familiar room at the top of our house where this spiritual practice happened. And, you know, so it does sound like a cliche because so many people say this, but, you know, it was in that first class. I was like, okay, I get this. This is my home. This is, this ties it all together. And it wasn't that it was Sufism. It was definitely the yoga, the yoga aspect of it, where it was physical, it was spiritual, it had a philosophy, it kind of just tied everything together for me. And literally has been, I've dedicated every single day since then. I think on on that day, I just said, I will have 
I'm going to make this a daily practice. Yeah. So give or take, you know, once I had my daughter um, and you wake up with the intention of doing practice and then you go to bed realizing that you never quite got around to it. <laughs> but yes, I have practiced every day since then. And that was we're nearly two decades ago now. So do you think your dad's discipline and devotion to his spiritual practice kind of set the stage for you? I mean, you said that, I think it's interesting that you said that it wasn't a religion that was necessarily formally like imposed or introduced in your family. And that's kind of how we're raising Sophia with yoga. Like we're not yet anyway, you know, requiring practice or requiring meditation time or anything like that every day. But we're hoping that the um, modeling will help her find whatever path she wants to be on. So do you feel like watching him kind of helped you with that or made you interested in that? Or was it the opposite? I definitely think that what my parents had was a discipline to, you know, it would just be drop everything. It's time to go and pray, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Although I probably haven't quite got that ability to drop everything and go and do it, it would literally be like, okay, everything has to stop. We might be in the middle of a game, but this has to go and happen. But that did, to, as I got older, it did peter out, I think. They were, my father was a devout Sufi for, I think, about 25 years, and my mother less so. But I think what it did is just made me realize that there needs to be something else in your life that you are committed to that is necessarily outside of parenting or your relationship or your work life mm-hmm. um, but actually this practice it is the key to tying all of those other things together mm. now if I don't get a chance to practice because I'm parenting well my work is teaching but traveling traveling um you know long flights um trying you know the nature of my work is that I'm often away on weekends and I go to bed early so that I can wake up to practice. And it's just a joke among my friends that I turn into, you know, a pumpkin at 8.30 at night (laughs) who's wearing her pajamas. And instead of wine, I drink, you know, chamomile tea when we go out (laughs) for dinners. They're all having their cocktails and I'm sort of ordering my... So there is a certain amount of, you know, I chose this lifestyle that, you know, that just is going going to mean that I can't see my friends sometimes or, you know, the amount of times that I have had to turn stuff down because I'm teaching on weekends. But it, it, that's just the way that it is. That's the lifestyle that I've dedicated myself to. And I certainly think that perhaps that was the form of modeling that came from my parents, which is when you're very committed to something, you just, you do it and you stay committed. And it might mean that you cannot do this that and the other but actually you're doing something that ties everything together in your life Mm. so you know if I don't get to practice now I definitely feel discombobulated and if I practice and nearly always my practice is a self-practice that happens early in the morning very early in the morning before anybody else is awake tell me what time in the morning Claire I'm I'm like I knew it was gonna be that's amazing you set your alarm and you're up at 4:30 and I've been to your house so you're at you're in the you're in your yoga, in room, yoga room which is in the back of your house that beautiful little yoga room yeah so it's in the back garden so I come down and I do my um my ayurvedic dinacharya which is my little routine 
as uh, Ayurvedic practices. And then I go out to the yoga room. And, you know, some days it's not bang on 4.30. Some days it's more like 5.30. And this morning... Slacker. (laughs) (laughs) And this morning it was 10 sun salutations and then five poses before I heard through my, you know, the monitor... My daughter, mommy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. But, you know, it's those moments where you just, it's just this opportunity to, to check in with yourself. And that to me is precious, precious, precious time. Mm. And although like yourself, I've, I've never sort of imposed on my daughter, like, oh, you have to practice yoga and you have to go out and do your yoga now. But definitely it is infused in every part of her life so much so that recently she was having a bad day at school and the teacher called me after class <laughs> and she said I just wanted to check with you um Amelia Bell was saying she was feeling a bit teary because it's the new moon today oh that's awesome <laughs> I love it so just to let you know and I said yeah she's a girl that's led by the moons and so often and because I use crystals with her and, you know, she in in our back garden, I have herbal water that's infused with crystals. And I'll say to her, do you need grounding? You know, go and get the grounding crystal water and drink that. And, and sometimes I walk in and I'll catch her and she's set up the little camera and she's doing a hi. My name is Amelia Bell Missingham. And today we're going to be focusing on backbends. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Oh, I know it's infusing her life and I can only hope that is positively infusing it and that one day, you know, she'll be prepared to, you know, do more meditation and, and to allow that. But it's as much part of her life as it's my life and it's in our house and it's, it's around us. But I just don't insist that she has right now you have to go and do that. But if we're having a bumpy time like we were tonight, it's just... Sometimes we'll just say, let's go and sit in the yoga room and light a candle. Mm. And, you know, we'll sit opposite each other and I'll say, put your hands in mine. Right. Let's just reconnect and look in each other's eyes and let's not get caught up in all the shouting or the, you know, accusations and stuff. Let's just try to just calm down and remember what this is all about. And that does really make a difference that in our space, there's a dedicated space for us to go and do that. That's so nice. There's no toys in there. You know, there's no distraction. There's no phone. There's no wireless internet. It's just we go out there and it's it's got good pictures on the wall. It's infused with good prana, mm-hmm. good books, yeah. you know, stuff. Her favorite thing is I have this massive Sanskrit dictionary. It's huge. She said to me recently, Mummy, um, is this our holy book? <laughs> I said, that could be our holy book, the Sanskrit dictionary, yes. Basically, yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. So I think she'd watch something on television about about various religions. So her thing now is to open this huge Sanskrit dictionary and, like, choose a word in Sanskrit. And then I'll I'll hear her and she's kind of talking and she's reading off the page and talking about this word and stuff like that. So stuff's infusing itself. Because also I know that she can see what a good effect it has on me. Right. You know? Yeah. So if I can catch myself in that moment between being a normal human being and being a stressed out parent and remember and get out to the yoga room with her and be, you know, and be a mother and be a yogi, 
then I've nailed that moment. Yeah. It doesn't happen all the time. But that's the magic for me is that's that moment of magic. And as a parent and as a yogi and a teacher. It's also so nice, even just from the most basic level for for our girls, we both have girls, to just simply see us setting aside time to take care of ourselves. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and I feel like I never saw her do that, you know? And so I actually was kind of afraid to become a mother because I had this assumption that I had to just give up absolutely every single piece of myself. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's just not going to work for me. It's not going to work for anyone in the whole family. So I always feel like it's nice for her to see, like when Jason says, like, mommy's going to go practice now. Oh, are you going to do yoga? Yep. And then I close the door and it's like, you're not allowed to go in. Yeah, yeah. It's a good thing. And also that, yes, um, it's really interesting that you brought up, you know, that that self-care. Because I think self-care is tied in with self-worth and then modeling self-care and self-worth to our children and especially girls because they are much more likely than boys to start comparing themselves to others much earlier. Yeah, I noticed that too. So that actually, you know, you're modeling to daughters in particular that I know how to take care of myself and I know how to have healthy and good boundaries and I know how to, you know, feel good about myself physically and mentally and emotionally. And so you're kind of, you know, allowing them to see that's that that that's a good thing. Right. That there's, you know, that there's an investment in that. And therefore that they also should do that for themselves and not just dip down into everything being a comparison to others. Right. So I want to go back for just a moment to your dance background. So you danced as a child and then also Oh, and, through, and then you became a, a professional dancer too, didn't you? Yeah, so I started dancing, you know, when I was four or five. And by the time I was eight or nine, my dance teacher is really my main inspiration in my life. She really got me at a time when my parents separated when I was six. And things kind of deteriorated around that time. Uh, in terms of just home life and stability. I was brought up by my dad from that point. So my dance teacher actually sort of became almost like a mother figure as well as, you know, the, my, my disciplinarian as well. She just insisted that I had discipline. So by the time I was eight or nine, I was dancing five nights a week and nearly all weekends. So it really just actually became my life. And then when I got to 16 and we had to make these decisions, for me, it was just a no brainer. I was going to go off and do, you know, professional and vocational dance training. So that's what I went and did 16 to 19. And in lots of ways, that was fantastic. In lots of ways, ways that was uh, quite challenging to have left home at 16 and be fending for myself and all of that. It was quite a tricky time as well. After that, I was very, very into choreography and creativity and making up movements. And it became quite clear to me that this whole thing of auditioning and going out to auditions and being rejected and hoping you get something and then not get something. I was really like 
you know what? I think the main thing I need to do is actually start doing this myself. So when I was um, 22, I started my own dance company. And at the time, there were uh, funding bodies that would support that type of work uh, in the arts, uh, which have deteriorated now. Um, so luckily enough, for a good few years, I toured with my dance company and it grew. And uh, at some points I had 10 dancers and a live DJ and lighting designers, costume designers, and we'd all go on the road and I would be... Was it like lyrical kind of modern dance? It was. I was really influenced by a choreographer that I worked with in New York called Doug Elkins. And he used to fuse, well, he was a b-boy and a classically trained modern dancer as well so he would kind of fuse the two and Mm -hmm. it was all very quirky and he's still around and he's a phenomenal choreographer and so it was a fusion at that time of hip-hop and contemporary dance modern dance and yoga started to influence it once I started practicing yoga that definitely had a big influence and modern ballet Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah so that was what I was very into and I also had at the time it was an all-female company so everyone we worked with would be a female have some form of artistry and uh, I was really proud of that that it was an all-female ensemble but everybody behind the scenes or lighting designers or the people that did projections and the video directors and that type of thing so Yeah, I was very, very proud of that, to do that in my very early 20s. What was sort of the psychological difference for you in terms of, you know, I mean, I I danced growing up too, and it's just, it's not an easy profession. So I'm just curious, you know, if there was something in yoga that called to you that you just, you know, that you weren't getting from dance, or if there were things, or maybe another way of asking the question is, are there things... um, that you brought with you from your dance background into yoga? And are there things that you consciously were happy to let go of from your dance background? I was quite happy to let go of the admin that it took to run a dance company. Oh, wow. Because it was a heap of admin and I was, you know, lucky enough to have an administrator and to have people that really championed us. But I found that side of it quite tricky because I felt that all I really wanted to do was just be creative and to have a vision and to in my head go to sleep and see lighting design and see bodies moving in space and you know be very very infused by music and I would see you know costume design and you know all of that type of thing and and I think that if there's anything that I kind of miss, it's it's that it's working towards. I used to love working towards our a show yeah, that that's started true. from nothing and was just a vision. And I couldn't. The other thing with running my company was that 
actually I say it was my company so it was my kind of vision and I was the leader but actually without everybody in it it was really our company like all of the dancers had so much input and all of the designers and administrators and people that were helping support us and the producers and the and the venues that we worked with really contributed to that and I think it was actually quite nice in a way to just go oh you know what for a while it's just me Mm -hmm. I don't come with this car or van full of people and stuff I mean literally at some points you know it's it's a minivan full of people on tour oh my gosh I can imagine and if anything went wrong it was down to me to sort it as a 22 year old wow You, you know so I think in a way when I started teaching yoga it was just like it's just me and my little bag, and I just have a few little things in here. <laughs> a few little props. I just have one belt and one block. It, you know, I'll even bring a yoga mat with me, <laughs> which now, you know, I hate lugging yoga mats around with me now. It's like back then, it was like, I, I felt so free. I would just go out to teach, and I would just feel like, it's just me, and all my music is on my little burnt CD, and I just put that in, and it yeah. did come with like, a whole tech spec full of sound and plugs and stereo to mini jacks and have you brought this and (laughs) so in a way that felt very freeing and then when I started teaching yoga I went right the parts that I love about choreography sequencing and seeing a sequence in my head and then imagining it on a body and imagine it having like in choreography you know if choreography is good whatever form of choreography it is, whether it's hip hop, whether it's music video dance, whether it's modern dance or contemporary dance, you know, any form of dance should have a story that is telling like a great movie or like a beautiful piece of artwork or like an amazingly well put together Mm -hmm. piece of fashion design. And even for me, some of the most creative people out there are actually stylists, you know, fashion stylists who just stuff together to me that's choreography Mm -hmm. so everything creatively should have a brilliant beginning middle and end so all I did was kind of go well how can I make this happen in yoga where the sequence has a beautiful beginning middle and end it has the dunamore it has the peak it has the you know the build up the and then it has this you know moment of transition it has a moment of change and then it has a moment of resolution Mm -hmm. and then it was music well okay well music which always drove me as a dancer I've always been completely passionate about music I bought my first piece of music when I was four years old Mm -hmm. Debbie Harry good choice (laughs) so I've always been really passionate about music so it was that okay, well, in yoga, I'm going to use music and I'm going to do the same thing. It's going to be a driving force behind my sequencing, just like choreography. It's going to hold the sequence together. It's going to be like a cinema soundscape that leads people into an emotional state where they're completely separated from whatever it was that they walked into the room with. Then I thought, how can I apply lighting design to 
my yoga classes, which there is, there is lighting design in yoga classes, mm-hmm. isn't there? Definitely. That's true. Yeah? So that for me was atmosphere. How do I create the right atmosphere in the class when people walk into the room? What can I bring from home or myself to make this atmosphere almost like a, um, not staged isn't the right word, but to give it that pulsation of life that you have when you go to the theater and you sit in your seat and the lights go out and there's this sudden moment of anticipation like what's going to happen now mm-hmm. so so then I was like okay well that's with I can create that through what the lighting and the atmosphere is like when people walk into the room how welcoming I am I ask everybody's names I are, if I haven't seen them before, I want to know their names. I want to connect with them. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that really freed me up about teaching yoga as opposed to being a choreographer was the idea, that idea that somebody sits down and watches. So I was like, okay, well, now what I get to do, I get to be in the audience. Do you see what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. So I get, as a teacher... I don't stand on my mat. I never even roll out a mat for myself often. I don't stand on my mat and have everyone facing me and looking at me like I did on the stage, like I did as a dancer, because that's very much like everyone look at me and I will perform as if I'm being looked at. The thing that really freed me up with yoga over and above choreographer or especially, especially being a dancer was that I got off the stage and walked around the audience and I felt what they were felt feeling and I responded to what they were feeling and I saw how the music was pulsing and moving in them and I saw the sequence coming alive and I would watch it and morph it and stretch it or so much more interactive experience yeah and funny enough like that's what people are really connecting with in theater now like sleep no more in New York you know, and, and these immersive theater people really into at the moment is immersive theater. Right. So they're actually part of this performance that's happening. But years ago, 16 years ago, when I started teaching yoga, I, I worked out that that was the thing that I had to do. I had to get off the stage and get into the audience and actually that they are the performers. Mm, yeah. And as a teacher, what that allowed me to do was free up one any ego attachment to being looked at and being watched and being good and also what it allowed me to do was really feel that the audience were driving where it was going to go next you could read them and then respond according to their needs yeah and as a choreographer that was really exciting to me because sometimes I would have an idea of what I was going to do but I would respond to the to what was happening in, in in front of me and I'd have to think on my feet and I'd have to think and I'd see it in my head and I would just or I'd close my eyes and I'd breathe or I'd be doing a hands-on assist and I'd feel them breathing and I'd know this is what I had planned to do isn't the right thing I'm going to do this next so in that respect what it turned into was sort of immersive improvisation Right. <laughs> so for me, as a choreography, a choreographer, I was then bringing this immersive choreography alive, like with improvisation. Yeah, that's so nice. So I didn't really, truthfully, I don't really miss choreography. 
because I'm kind of getting to do that. But in these times when I feel most uninspired, that's what I, I have to remember that route as being why I started. Right. I would venture to guess that you had a huge advantage as a beginning yoga teacher because of having that dance background um, in terms of being able to look at bodies and read what was happening physically. But then also, it sounds like you're also describing being able to read energy and being able to read what breath conveys about energy. And I think that's such a hard thing for a brand new teacher. Like I can just sort of speak from my own experience when I was teaching, you know, I went from being the student and just listening to the teacher and being in my own practice to suddenly having 30 bodies in front of me and just being puzzled by how different they all were and how they all, <laughs> you know, that they were all responding differently. Or like you said, that they were responding differently to the class that I had planned than I had initially planned. Um, you know, I mean, it sounds like you just went in and it was just kind of in you already. I think that by watching the teachers that I've trained on the teacher training, you know, that I run, just many, many, many different people have have gone through the training. And I think that to a certain extent, extent, to a certain extent, you can teach that. You can teach people how to become more receptive to watch bodies and see what's going on. You can show people hands-on assists and yoga adjustments or and yoga assists. But a certain aspect of it, like those that I've definitely felt through the trainings over the years have been very gifted are the ones that have this ability to read bodies. I think part of it is experience over time as well. I possibly wasn't amazing at the very beginning and it definitely it definitely will have evolved somehow I can I remember and a certain amount like when you're ner- when I feel nervous if I just get down and in amongst people then those nerves definitely dissipate. And I think that's the most daunting thing about being a new teacher is that moment where you have to stand at the front and introduce yourself. And then you ask it, you know, for instance, you, I always say everyone gets that first down dog and, you know, you're kind of in your brain, you're kind of going through, you know, all your sheets of your plan and your, all the classes, you know, and you're going, oh gosh, which one am I going to do now? Right, okay, I'm going to do this one. This is what I'm going to do now. So, but I just think that it, it, it takes time and it's certainly a little bit of learned stuff. And certainly there's some people that will just, that will just come more naturally to them, that reading energy and reading bodies and being able to energetically put hands on bodies and adjust in a, in a way that feels receptive and skilled. Mm-hmm. Where do you find your inspiration these days for teaching? I was looking through your um, Instagram and I was kind of marveling at your workshop descriptions. Like, I want to take the creating magic workshop. <laughs> I want to take the, I want to do the warrior within month with Claire. What, in what areas of your life do you draw inspiration for your teaching? So the way that I run my teaching is I run from a new moon to a new moon because I always feel that new moon is this time of introspection and the seedlings of creativity and ideas are sort of planted then. And by the full moon, everything is kind of more powerful and blossoming and there's lots of energy. So always what I do, and this is what I teach all of my teachers to do, is every month they have a new idea and theme. And the Jiva Mukti method also do this, right. which is, which is right. fantastic. Mm-hmm. So they, 
they have a, um, a focus of the month. Sometimes my what I'm focusing on will last two months or three months, depending on how deep you can actually go within that. And some of them are just a four week cycle and then they move on. And really, uh, like Warrior Within and the creating magic workshops, it's really that if there's something that I want to learn more about as a teacher, if there's something that I want to give as a framework for my practice, then that will be the creative, you know, the creative aspect of that class for that month. Mm -hmm. Um, And then everyone that, for instance, if I need class cover, then that's what they're teaching as well. They'll get the whole thing through of what they, so they can lead on. So it's not just a random thing. But I don't tell them uh, with my, I wouldn't sort of say, do this in this order and do this. I would say these are the creative ideas that you just go and you run with it because everybody will have a different way of expressing it. And to go back to the Jeeva Mukti method, it was David Life once said to me, you have to teach what you practice and practice what you teach. And that really, really spoke to me because it was just, if I'm going to have a theme or an idea or you know, have a dharmic perspective, an intention behind each of these classes, then it has to come from a place where I'm sitting and researching and reading. And, you know, I always have this saying, which is, you know, money spent on books is never money wasted. Mm-hmm. So to buy books and to, and to read and to research and almost for me, you can research on the internet. But for me, the magic is to buy a book by somebody who will have sat and poured their heart and soul into getting this book together and getting it out there into the world and to read their words and to research. So, for instance, at the moment, my theme this month is on delicious Durga. Mm. And this idea of protection, very simply on protection, but it meant that I got out all many, many books about Durga and the goddesses of protection and how we go into protection mode in ourselves, in our bodies when we're sick, because where I was diagnosed with lupus, I felt a part of me like, oh, I have to protect myself now. And I really had to be mindful that I wasn't going to be like this victim of something happening to me that actually I had to go, don't consider that you have it. This, you are always loved and protected but you don't need to close something off or you don't need to stop doing anything. In fact, it should, it should actually make me want to do more and, you know, mm-hmm. to be in charge. Like Durga is in charge. You know, she rides in on her. Her lion, right? A lion or, yeah. So any theme, any month is something that I'm really interested in. And then this the, the new workshop that I've created, which is Creating Mag- Magic, is um, how we can kind of draw inspiration from other areas where, you know, when we're, when we're feeling really inspired and we're feeling really good, whether that's we're musicians or you're whatever we might do, maybe not even in a creative business at all, but that when we really create magic, it's when we're really in this good flow where everything else around us has disappeared. Absolutely. So there's an author called Mahali Sinsen Mahali who's written Flow. Yes, I know all about that book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so he talks about, you know, we have to be in a place where we are challenged enough that we're, we're really pulsating with this anticipation 
of potential, but we're not being pushed too much that we're actually stressed by misunderstanding and mm-hmm. not being able to grasp what is being asked of us mm. and that there's a really sweet spot there and that that is where we will find our most creative place where we'll feel in flow like in our bodies and we'll feel balanced and be able to do all the things that we need to do in our lives like parenting and having a career and feeling fulfilled and being able to have enough energy to give love mm. You know, all of that. So that's what the creative magic thing is. It's not necessarily a yogic thing. It's actually, it's it's quite a bigger thing about finding magic in our lives. Yeah, I love it. I still want to take it. (laughs) You're going to come and take it Make it an online course. (laughs) Make it an online course, Claire. Yeah, I mean, I read that book long ago when I was sort of in a crisis state. I haven't revisited it, but I don't really feel like I need to because to me it was like the beginning of understanding yoga, right? It was the beginning of understanding like no matter what's happening around you, no matter what stresses you're going through in your life, there is a place that you can go to and get into to get into this flow state. And it's within you. You just have to sort of tap into it. You have to figure out what it is, you know, for that's going to take you there and and give you that respite from like the stresses of of the practical world. Yeah, I think it's also just realizing, I mean, the things that I've realized over over the years are when I am most creative. And for me, that's even, it's certainly, it has a flow of a month and seasonally as well. Um, but also it has a flow of the day. Just, I know, I've got many of my amazing girlfriends, my mommy mates, who are lawyers and creative directors and all array of wonderful um, things that they do. Um, their, their work day starts in the evening after their children have gone to bed. Now, I know that for me, because I, cho- I get up early yeah. for my sadhana, that I can't work in the evening. I'm not really great in the evening at coming up with creative ideas. In fact, for me, my absolute best time of day when I'm most creative is between 10 and 12. Mm-hmm. Now, if I can sit down and I can be in my creative space in those two hours, there's almost no point me trying to be creative at one, two o'clock, three o'clock or 8 p.m. I will have done everything I need to do. And the quality of it will be so much better than what I try to do later in the day or in the evening. And some people, their creative time is at night. I have a, a good friend of mine who's a comedian and her time for writing is, you know, between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m., (laughs) <laughs> I'm like that. I'm a night. I'm more like eight to midnight. And it's something I struggle with with motherhood, actually, because I can't really go to bed at midnight and wake up and do the mothering that I need to do. So that time is, I only do it once in a while now, but oh, I love that time so much. It's so quiet. The house is quiet, you know, and I can just kind of open up. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the other thing as anybody who's who wants to create magic is to actually to know yourself, to know yourself enough and to create times when you know that you will be able to create magic. So for instance, for you, it might be that one day a week, you don't have to get up in the morning and do the parenting thing. That's true. You know, you've got, right, that is my night when I'm going to go. And even if you have to go and stay at a girlfriend's who doesn't have children, or you have to go and stay in a a B&B, I don't know, however it might work. 
You know, do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Just carve out a space, carve out a time. Carve out that space to create magic because it's the thing that sustains all of us, even people that don't consider themselves to be creative. So I, I, on my teacher training, I've had people that have been very high up lawyers and they've started a teacher training and I've given them a project to do where they, they write every day and they make a, almost like a, a sadhana diary of all of their practices. And they say, oh, but I'm not creative. And I say, well, just go and buy a beautiful book, buy some nice pencils, write with a beautiful pen. And then there's four things that they have to do every day in this diary. And I'm not kidding. I have opened these books when I've come to read them and, you know, I'm marking them essentially, but I'm reading them and often I'm crying my eyes out. What I've open and I realize is that they start off and they don't do much creative and their handwriting is very neat and then maybe a weekend they just start to create magic like some of them are very talented artists and then I'll say where was this and they say I haven't done this since I was at school I mean seriously talented artists wow (laughs) say I haven't done this since I was at school and then I'll go that's it. That's your thing. You've just found it. I want to just finish. It's a bit of a non sequitur, but it's just been on my mind to talk to you about it. You know, you're you're still based in London and your country is going through massive changes with Brexit. Like, and our country's been going through a lot as well. Like a lot of painful, a lot of painful stuff. I saw in your Instagram that you did a writing on, on Shraddha, on faith. I wanted to just ask you to talk about that a little bit to talk about what yoga can offer us in this time of like upheaval and change or, or kind of how we can draw upon faith collectively. I think that one of the most important things that comes out of bringing anybody together in a room where they have all arrived in that space. And this for me is why if we just close ourselves off and only, only practice on our own, without actually integrating with other people is that it can feel very lonely and then life feels lonely and we feel on our own. But I think one of the most important things about yoga is when you bring people together in a room, what you're creating is satsang. There's a little inkling in each one of those people that brought them to that room together in that space at that time where they're all looking in a certain way for the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Something inside of them is looking for the same thing. And that's what I always remind people in my classes. You know, don't be annoyed with the person next to you on the mat who has, you know, flipped their mat and, you know, and made a set, you know, like all these etiquette things. It's like just have, we just have to remember in some shape or form that all of us have come to that space in satsang, in, in those coming together and trying to find the inkling of their own truth in, in the center of their being. I really think that that's what people are looking for. And sometimes it's wrapped up in, I came to yoga because, blah, 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 whatever it might be. I came to yoga because I had an injury and somebody said it might help me. I came to yoga because I'm not um, sleeping I'm, well. Or... I'm not sleeping and I'm stressed or somebody told me it would be good. I came to yoga because I saw a young fit lady in a bikini on Instagram doing a handstand. And I found that inspiring. 
Okay, so whatever reason they came to yoga in in the first place, often the reason that people will stay in with the practice and get really interested in it is because it is like a blossoming of faith of shraddha inside of them. It's like this faith that they're not alone mm. and this faith that there's other people that think and feel the same way that they do and that there's a collective nourishment in breathing and being around people and that actually it helps us it helps us on many levels like mentally our mental health is is nourished when we're around other people that we see going through stuff like person next to you struggling in the, the same pose that you struggle in you've never met them you don't know them but you just glance out of the corner of your eye in your peripheral vision and you just suddenly feel that it's okay that you struggle in that pose mm-hmm. do you know what I mean absolutely that I think that um yeah the other thing that I always encourage people to do is I'll, I'll, I'll kind of say you know and if you don't know the person next to you on your mat just at the end of class just introduce yourself yep. and smile at them in the changing room or you do you know what I mean like yes in my classes there's been so many good friendships that have blossomed just because they're all facing each other they're not facing a teacher they're not facing me they're all facing each other they're all looking in towards each other they all all can be inspired and awakened with each other and there's just something also very powerful you know to loop back to dance and choreography about many many people all moving in unison together Mm, that's true there's something very powerful about that which is why those I can't remember what they're called but you know when people all go to a a station and then all suddenly everyone would start dancing and flash flash mob mob. yes that's it why that was so intriguing that whole that whole thing was just there's something very powerful about just having people together and then what it you what one should feel through yoga is that if something big happens in the world get to your yoga class and be around other people so that you feel that you can you can create a discussion and you can talk to people and you have people that are feeling, you know, the same way that you do, often the same way that you do. But but that the problem with social media, you know, that we're hiding behind this mask of how we feel we should project out into the world. Yeah. And that makes us more lonely. It makes us feel more lonely. It's the dichotomy is like, it's meant to be connecting us to more people instantly, wherever we want, wherever in the world. But actually, it can make you more lonely because what our hearts need is we need personal interaction with one another. Yeah, absolutely. So it has, like everything, it has its good points and its, its bad points. But I think Shraddha faith is just the faith that other people are going on this journey and you don't know where that you know, winding staircase is going to lead you, but you still take those few steps at the bottom and you just keep walking. And and that for me is faith. And and you meet people on the way and they come into your lives and then they drop away and they come in and they drop away. And, and that's what you're learning on this. This journey is just that you have faith. Yeah. I love that. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> it's nearly half past 10. Oh my I, gosh. You have to get up and do your practice. You've got to get, get in your jammies. I probably am just going to start talking in strange tongues in a minute. <laughs> I'm 
stop making any sense. (laughs) Well, I love talking to you always, always, always. And I could keep you up all night so that you miss your sadhana tomorrow morning, but I won't do that. (laughs) Lovely, Andrea. Thank you so much. Thank you. Show notes for this episode can be found at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 13. If you want to practice with Claire online, you can find her at yogaglow.com. And if you want to practice with her in person, you can find her in London at Triyoga. I want to say a quick thank you to those of you out there who've shared the podcast on social media or who've written reviews on iTunes. It means so much to know that you're enjoying it and to know what's helpful and interesting to you. I really feel like I'm getting into my groove now and I'm super excited for the content that's coming down the pike. I've got some practical Ayurveda for you, some more Jason Crandall for you, and an interview with one of my all-time favorite nutritionists, Rebecca Katz, is coming up as well. So thanks for listening, and until next time, enjoy your practice.